asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. In recent weeks, we've really focused on some ways that listeners can boost their income. Uh, so whether that's through starting your own side business and growing your network like Hala talked about, or when we talked with local realtor Alan about diving into investing in real estate, well, what better way to test the waters? While you are away, your home could also earn extra income. That's right. Your empty space could be an Airbnb while you're traveling, because that's all you need to become an Airbnb host. It's a lot easier than you think, and you don't need to Airbnb your entire house. You could just host your extra spare room. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Supercharge your work decks with AI-powered Canva presentations. All you do is start with a prompt. You describe your, your presentation in a few words, and Canva presentations will generate captivating slides that you can then customize in seconds. Canva presentations are designed for every workplace and every department. Whether you work in sales, marketing, HR, ops, and more, Canva presentations can generate any deck you want for work. Sales decks, marketing presentations, onboarding plans, you name it. Any department can save time on any presentation with AI. Generate slides and seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Hey, girlfriends. It's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to How to Money. I'm Joel. And I am Matt. And today we're discussing avoiding financial scams and retirement planning with Ben Carlson. Ben Carlson is the Director of Institutional Asset Management at Ritholtz Wealth Management. And there, he helps to create detailed investment plans and manage portfolios for institutions and individuals to help them to achieve their goals. Ben is also the author of the new book, Don't Fall For It, a short history of financial scams, which we'll discuss. And on top of that, he has his own investing podcast called Animal Spirits, and he writes all about investing over at his site, uh, A Wealth of Common Sense. Ben is just crazy prolific, and we're excited to, to talk about scams, but also how we as individuals should approach saving and investing for retirement. So Ben, thanks so much for, for coming on the podcast. Hey guys, thanks for having me. Glad to have you, Ben. I've been uh, reading your blog for quite a number uh, of years now. Man, you put out some great stuff. The first question that we have, though, for, for everybody who comes on the show is is tied to something that Matt and I care about, which we drink a beer <laughs> every episode. And yeah. t today we're drinking a beer that was sent to us by a listener, listener Andy. And so Matt and I intentionally drink a beer because it's something that we love, that we prioritize now while saving and investing well for the future. So uh, what's your splurge, Ben? What's your craft beer equivalent? Uh, I like to live life what I call selectively cheap. So, <laughs> uh, you know, it, it's the kind of thing where my wife and I like to have a nice house, but we don't necessarily have to fill it with really expensive furniture. 
Uh, we like to drive cars that are, you know, high quality and maybe on the newer end of things, but not necessarily really expensive. So we're, we're not, you know, we're more along the lines of a nice Honda as opposed to a nice Mercedes. Um, you know, things like that. We, we like to splurge when we go on vacations. And like last year, we did a vacation when we paid a little more for an adults-only section, but we don't go on a ton of vacations because we have little kids. So I think it's kind of trade-offs like that where you're, you're willing to pay for something a little extra, uh, but only things that, that really matter to you. That's kind of the way that I like to look at these things. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah, I like what you said there about having a nice house, but you don't necessarily care to fill it with fancy furniture. You know, like you're you're not looking for a designer chair necessarily. You just want to have a nice nice place to live. Right. And yeah, we <laughs> we like to go out to dinner, which obviously is not happening much anymore, but that's more of a burger and a beer type of place than going out to a yes. really fine dining establishment. So I think it's it's kind of about finding those trade-offs. And uh, it's about finding those burger and a beer deals as well. A lot of times you can <laughs> they got those combos going on. <laughs> yeah, the $8 burger and beer combo. Yeah, that's exactly. the way to go. Well, Ben, you've written that uh, common sense and self-awareness, that they are extremely underrated attributes in the world of finance. That's part of why you called your site a wealth of common sense. Uh, so why are, do you feel that those two things uh, are oftentimes missing you know, so frequently when it comes to personal finance? Especially the finance realm. I've, I've worked in that area my whole career. I think people assume that intelligence and people who uh, went to really good schools and can talk about really complex topics in a complex manner. They, they, they assume those people know what they're talking about and that they know what they're doing. And I've just found that, that most of the time that isn't really the case, that the people who are able to um, cut through all the complexities and complicated mess that is the world of finance and, and just explain it in a simple manner that makes sense to, to just normal people who aren't even in the field, I've always found that that's far more helpful than, than really getting into the weeds and getting into mathematical formulas. And so my whole thing when I started my site was just how do I talk to normal people about this stuff? Because that's who was questioning me about this stuff outside of my, my day job. It was, you know, my in-laws and friends and family. Mm -hmm. And they would say, you know, I d just don't understand this. Explain it to me like I'm a six-year-old. And <laughs> that's what I tried to do when I, when I started the blog. And so I think if you can get into that mindset of, of really dumbing things down and making them easy and easy to digest and using analogies and stories, I think it's easier for people to learn that way. And and I also have learned kind of through the back door, I didn't really mean to do this, but a lot of the other people in the investment world that have been reading my stuff have realized like, oh, this this actually, it's it, it it's, it's smarter to actually explain this stuff in a mm. simple way. And they use it with their clients and stuff. So I, I think anytime you can make things easier for people to digest it, it's helpful. Yeah, cut out some of that jargon <laughs> that just instantly turns people off and makes them makes them feel dumb <laughs> and kind of uh, it oftentimes makes them disinterested in the subject altogether. I feel like uh, also to Ben, you, you uh, being a financial advisor, right? It doesn't necessarily mean that you're super into personal finance. You're more into investing, but you in particular, you definitely seem to be into personal finance as well. So, kind of what sparked your interest in investing and money and, and just kind of overall personal finance that maybe some other people in your Base don't necessarily have. For some reason, I was always interested in saving, and maybe it's just passed down from my parents, where I was always relatively frugal. My dad would always talk about the the evils of credit card debt and these things, and I just kind of the, the bug sort of hit me. And when I got out of college, I realized, well, I have this textbook finance degree, and I know all these these different theories about finance, but I don't really know how to manage my own personal wealth. So, what's the point of investing if you don't have any money saved and you can't really manage your own finances? And so, it, it was more to me about a, a journey of 
learning what I didn't know and, and reading about this stuff. And, and so obviously, I know a lot of people aren't going to spend their weekends and nights reading about personal finance. But I think even just picking up a book or two on this stuff for people can be so helpful because it touches so many different areas of your life. And and the way I see it is, you know, you could be the best investor in the world and you could be have Warren Buffett stock picking skills. But if you can't save money, it doesn't matter how good of an investor you are. Hmm. You know, it's all about getting that stuff done first. And so I think a lot of people don't realize, you know, the the saving and personal finance and getting your budget and all that stuff in order. It, it's just so much more boring than picking stocks and figuring out what the next best investment strategy is. But you have to do all that stuff first before you even think about starting investing. I feel like personal finance are that, that's the tires. That's where the tires meet the road, right? You can have the nicest car, you can have the most powerful engine, the most sophisticated navigation system, right? <laughs> but if you don't have good tires on there, as soon as that thing, as soon as you mash the the gas, you know, you're just gonna you're just gonna spin out, and you're not gonna get anywhere. And obviously, that's more of our approach as well, right? Trying to take a more practical approach to money which is why we like talking about personal finances. But it's, I guess it's encouraging, though, to hear that coming from someone like you who specializes more in investing and institutional wealth and just all these larger things that you haven't lost sight you know, of, of how this impacts the common folks, us individuals. <laughs> well, and the crazy thing is, it's, it's amazing how many people that I've met over the years in this field who make a ton of money working in the world of finance, but their personal finances are a mess. And so they're right. managing money for other people. But they don't know how to manage their own money and spending. And, and you know, there's, a, there's a, obviously a big difference between, you know, having a, a high income and becoming wealthy. And a lot of times wealth is what you don't see that other people have. You know, it's, it's not all the mm -hmm. toys and big houses and cars and all that stuff. It's, it's the stuff you don't see that, that's really behind the scenes. Yeah, if you were to go to like school kids and hold up two pictures, one uh, of like a family in this large house with a nice car and, and one with a, a, of a family with a small house and a tiny car or, or whatever, like a, a Honda Civic, they'd be like, oh, that, the, the person, the family with the giant house and the fancy car, they're, they're rich. But uh, often it's the opposite that's the case. Ben's not wealthy. He just drives a Honda. Yeah, so. exactly. Exactly. <laughs> but Ben, we know that's not true. Um, ben, let's talk about COVID real quick. You mentioned, obviously, we're not going out to eat as much, but, but COVID has brought on a lot lot of government and federal reserve involvement in the markets that we've never ever seen before. Uh, do you think that those lending programs and the trillions of dollars in stimulus have fundamentally changed the way that we think about risk when we're investing in the market? It's possible. It's it, it's it's a wild time and it it's still so fresh and young in this in this crisis that it's hard to believe we're only, I don't know, 4 or 5 months into it. Right. But you know, we had the fastest, most sharp drop off in stock market history where the stocks fell 30% in something like 23 trading days. But then we also had, you know, $10 trillion in monetary and fiscal stimulus hit the market at the same time. And so people who are trying to wrap their heads around, you know, how can we have a depression going on in this country where you have double digit unemployment and millions of people out of work and parts of the economy basically in the freezer? But then you also have the stock market charging back to close to new all time highs. And, and part of it is that we've just had these trillions of dollars hit, and people don't know what that means in terms of unintended consequences. I, I do think once the cat gets out of the bag and we have another recession down the road, and people say, like, okay, this, this actually helps people. It, it got people on the lower end of the income scale through this, maybe not unscathed, but, but you know, it helped them a lot, bridge that gap. I think if, if that can happen, then I think it's going to be hard for people to not push push their their politicians in the future to do this again. Hmm. And, and so I think it's it's going to be hard to go back. And we obviously had a lot of stimulus in 2008. This is basically doubled down on it. And so 
I, I think this could change the nature of risk in the future, and I don't know what that means, but I think there's going to be a lot of unintended consequences. Well, speaking of federal programs, there are a lot of different opinions about Social Security. So do you think it'll actually still be there for, for us, for our generation, you know, for millennials? Um, you know, should we count on it for, you know, as part of our retirement? I wrote about this a couple of months ago, and the response I got was overwhelmingly that millennials are not taking this into account. And my stance on it is, I think a politician would be crazy to ever completely get rid of this program. Now, there are certainly ways where they could they could pull it back a little bit and make you take it when you're a little older, or maybe the bump ups are, are not as um, high as they are for, for people these days. But it's estimated that in 2034, that we're going to run out and there's not going to be enough money in that pool of people who are paying in Social Security taxes to fund it. Uh, but but what that means is not that it's effectively going to zero. It means that there will be roughly 80% of the money coming in that will be paying out the people who are taking it out as benefits. So to fill that 20% gap, you're either going to have to increase taxes or alternatively, the government would have to cut back Social Security maybe for younger people or they could just borrow more money and take the money from elsewhere. So it's actually one of the the better programs that came out of the Great Depression in terms of there really wasn't a backstop for people retiring back in the day. You, you really just had to fend for yourself. So I, I know a lot of millennials think this program is on borrowed time. And it's not going to be there. I would take the other side of that and think that it, hmm. it's going to be there. But uh, you're just going to have it, it. It's possible it could be less than than people think now, but I don't think it's completely going away. I think a politician would be crazy to ever touch that program. Yeah, I think you're right. If you're the politician screaming into the microphone that, that you want to do away with Social Security, <laughs> the chances of you getting elected are... You get all the votes. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> right. um, but Ben, isn't part of that problem that we're just living so much longer now. And, you know, when Social Security was was first instituted, it really was kind of one of those things for your final years, if you lived that long. And now so many more of us are living into in mid to late 80s. And and that is one of the biggest problems leading to Social Security, you know, being becoming in, insolvent in the near future. So it would seem like moving back the retirement age, the eligibility age for Social Security would would make a whole lot of sense too, right? Certainly, and especially if they did it for you know everyone under the age of 40 or something like that as a way to grandfather other people in. And I think it also means that just younger people are probably going to have to get used to working longer because we're living longer. Obviously, you know, retirement itself is a relatively new concept. For, for a lot of people, it didn't really, there really wasn't anything as retirement. It was kind of you worked until you died back when people just owned farms. And, and so... I think it's just something that we're really still wrapping our heads around and getting used to. But a lot of these municipalities that are offering retirement at age 55 or 60, yeah, obviously they're going to be in a world of hurt because they're making promises to people uh, on a different life expectancy range. So yeah, and yeah. I think you know millennials and Gen Z, they're probably going to just get used to the fact of I'm I'm not going to completely leave the working world at age 65 or whatever it is that people do these days. It's going to be more of a slow transition where you're going to have the ability to do some other kind of work and slowly transition out of that instead of just cutting it all off and, and leaving in one day. Sure. Yeah. And hopefully folks have maybe other work lined up, just other sources of income. I mean, we talk often about diversifying your sources of income to where you can make those changes, right? Where, where you can leave the work that maybe you don't necessarily enjoy. And... Or that you're getting too old for. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Making that transition a little smoother versus, like you said, like the traditional hard cutoff when it does come time to retire. So, uh, Ben, we want to talk some about your book specifically. We're going to dive into to scams, and we're going to get to that right after this break. 
When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. That's why you listen to this podcast. And if you're looking to upgrade your wallet, you need to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. If you're paying for vacations with whatever card is in your wallet, you could be missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. You can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade, lounge access... Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. I'm guessing that a lot of listeners are starting to solidify their summer travel plans. We always like to get the families together, Matt, for a week at the beach every single summer. We've already got that trip to St. Simons on the calendar. Pumped for that. But sometimes those vacations get expensive. So what better way to offset some of those costs than to have your home earning some money while you're away? That's right. Why let it sit empty when it could be earning extra income? It's the financially smart thing to do. So think it through. Maybe you've got some extra space in your home, or maybe you have an entire house to host. Or maybe you're just going on vacation and your home is sitting empty. In every case, you can Airbnb it. You already have the space, so it won't be a huge adjustment. I mean, the way I see it, if you're not using your space, you have two options. You can let it just sit there empty, or you do some optimizing and make some money off it. Really, if you think about it, you already have an Airbnb. You just need to start using it. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. If you're listening to this podcast right now and you're a small business owner, listen up. Upswell Marketing would like to remind you that when customers choose your small business, they're actually choosing you. So focus on super serving your existing customers and let Upswell handle the pipeline generation of new leads and customers. They do everything from hyper-targeting best fit prospects through campaign optimization. Upswell Marketing's unique approach includes direct mail, search engine marketing, and social media ads, and has fueled more than 10,000 small business success stories. Upswell specializes in developing customized direct response campaigns and is now offering a no-obligation free assessment of your current marketing strategies. Not to mention, new customers also receive 15% off their first order when they mention that they heard about Upswell on this podcast. For more information, visit upswellmarketing.com. That's upswellmarketing.com. And now a word from the show's sponsors at Betterment. Do you want your money to dream big? Do you want your money to be a total self-starter? Are you annoyed that your money doesn't work hard enough? Don't worry. Betterment is here to help. Betterment is the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Their automated technology is built to help maximize returns, meaning when you invest with Betterment, your money can auto-adjust as you get closer to your goal. Rebalance if your portfolio gets too far out of line and your dividends are automatically reinvested. That can increase the potential for compound returns. In other words, your money is breaking a sweat while you can be breaking bread. You'll never picture your money the same way again. Betterment, the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Visit Betterment.com to get started. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed.
All right, we're back from the break. We're talking with Ben Carlson. And, and now let's talk about avoiding financial scams. And Ben, you just recently wrote a book called Don't Fall For It. And it was a, a short history, a short uh, documenting of financial scams. It was fascinating. Um, and we were just discussing COVID, though. So before we get into some of the stories you mentioned in your book, I, I wanted to, to know from you, uh, as you've been kind of following what's going on with COVID-19 and the increasing rate of scams that we've seen, like, what sort of scams have you seen popping up? And do you feel like it's a particularly scary time out there for, for normal citizens? Well, that's one of the things that I came across in my research, that anything health-related is probably going to be almost easier than, than financially related scams because mm-hmm. when you're dealing with someone's health, that, that's their livelihood. And so making promises in that realm, especially when it comes from someone who seems like they are credentialed and know what they're talking about, and especially when, when you're talking about the health field and the medical field, it, there just aren't that many experts out there. So when you feel like you have found someone who knows what they're talking about and they say they have this, this miracle cure or, or, or this one simple thing you can do or these five steps people are going to want to latch onto that story because it's going to keep them and potentially their family healthy. So there's just this long history. It goes back to snake oil salesmen uh, who literally in the Chicago World's Fair back in the 1800s would boil snakes and take their oil and tell people that it had these healing powers. And people just wanted to believe it back then because there really wasn't much else that they could latch onto. And when you're dealing in such an uncertain time, and, and people are just grasping for answers. I think there's a tendency of people to just do what the quote-unquote experts tell them. And a lot of times those experts are people that are that know human nature much better than they do, and they're, they're really trying to take advantage. So it's really hard for people to determine the difference between people that are experts they should listen to and these people who are pretending to be experts who really just have something to sell them and are just trying to take advantage of people. Yeah, there's a lot of self-appointed experts out there <laughs> in a lot of realms, really. <laughs> Well, not even just that, too. I mean, I feel like you see it when it comes to news. Like, it, I mean, it's, it's oftentimes difficult to know what news source to trust because you're, you're seeing different things. And, and like you said, Ben, when it comes to our health, I think we are. We're a little more concerned about how, our, our health and how that impacts our ability to work or support our families or, you know, continue living even. But, uh, but yeah, certainly anything health-related, there's, there's bound to be scams associated with us. I, I can only imagine we're going to see that increase as some different treatments make their way onto the yeah. market. Good and point. are going to be more widely uh, available. That that that's like these different scams are just waiting for their opportunity. Just they're just waiting for that to to release in order for them to kind of pounce on that opportunity, right? Yeah, and, and unfortunately, I think we're also going to see the times where you're going to have people who are are just not really trusting of things that are effective treatments and vaccines. So I think, mm. I mean, hopefully one day when we get a vaccine there's probably going to be a decent percentage of the population who's going to be too scared to take it because they think it's it's not going to work or it's going to hurt them. And it's not safe. So, it's brand new. Yeah. So unfortunately, I think we're going to get some of this from both sides where even the stuff that is probably going to be helpful, there are going to be people who are not trusting of it because they don't know where to get their information and because they feel that experts, other experts have failed them in the past. Hmm. And, and so, yeah, the, these, these uncertain times are just going to be, unfortunately, really easy to take advantage of people and because they're, you're talking about some of their greatest fears here. Sure, sure. Yeah. So Ben, let's talk about your book. There are so many interesting stories and anecdotes in your in your book. Is there a particular one uh, that stood out to you the most, you know, as you're researching and, and writing the book? 
the the first chapter I wrote was probably the favorite story I came across in this guy named John Brinkley who who did take advantage of people because he was a doctor and this was in the late 1800s early 1900s when it was much easier to become a doctor there really wasn't weren't as many regulations and rules in place this guy paid $100 for a diploma he never actually finished medical school he just kind of told people he did and he actually used the radio as his platform to get out there for people. So it was he was kind of like one of the first people who tried to become an influencer. And his form of social media <laughs> was using the radio. And the people, airwaves. Yeah, because, and this was still a relatively new thing at the time. This, this was finally a way for people. It was a way to reach a mass audience for the first time. And, I mean, this guy was like the Instagram influencer of his day. And he would get on the air and he would read people's problems that they had health-wise. And he would prescribe a, a medicine uh, on the spot without ever seeing these people. He'd say, hey, take take three doses of uh, my medicine potion 492 or whatever and go to his pharmacy and buy it. And he wasn't even checking these patients out. And, and his, his, his sort of coup d'etat was he was on a small farm town in Kansas. And this is in the early 1920s. And he had a farmer come up to him. And the, and the doctor, because it was such a small town, his, his doctor's office literally butted up to a farm. And the, this guy came to him, he's a farmer. He said, you know, I, I'm kind of a flat tire doc. I can't get my wife pregnant. I don't know what's wrong with me. And he said, it's too bad I don't have billy goat nuts because he was looking out in the field and saw some goats. And this light went off in Brinkley's head. And when I read this, I couldn't believe it. The, the story is so wild. I guess they, it's possible they're, they're making a movie with uh, Matt Damon about this. If, oh, we no ever, <laughs> if we ever get back to making movies again. But, and, and so it went off in his head. He said, okay, I, I'm going to perform these surgeries. And Brinkley literally would take the testicles out of goats and implant them into Shut humans. <laughs> when I read that, I was shocked. So he actually did this, and lo and behold, the first guy he did it to, for whatever reason, a couple months later, his wife got pregnant. And so people thought that it actually worked when it was probably just a case of, you know, enough time had passed and his, and his wife had, had just finally got pregnant. Obviously, doing a, a goat testicle implant was was not helping this guy get his wife pregnant but <laughs> Brinkley sold such a good story and again these people were just latching on for narratives that they came to him and unfortunately a lot of these people because that he didn't know what he was doing and he wasn't really a, a doctor a lot of people ended up getting hurt or die from his surgeries he was performing but he was such a good salesperson that people just wanted to believe him and, and the craziest part about it is it, he died in the early 1940s, and by then the the regulars had taken him down and, and taken him out. They wouldn't let him be a doctor anymore because they finally caught up with him, and, and he, he died kind of broken, penniless. And at his funeral, there was a guy in the crowd who supposedly said, I, I know that this guy was bilking me, but I kind of liked him anyway. So it just gets down to this mm. point where if you have this this ability to sell yourself and sell stories and get people to like you, you can almost get them to do anything. And unfortunately, a lot of people who do that don't use that power for good. They use it for bad. Right. Mm. I mean, that's why so many of the biggest scams out there happen with people in a religious congregation or someone that you you know or a family member. It's it's affinity fraud, really. It's it's somebody right. that that that's close to you. Uh, which yeah, it's sad, but but true. So so what are, are maybe one of the biggest similarities in the frauds and scams that you covered in the book? Was there anything that you saw as kind of this this trajectory or this line running through all the scams that seemed like a just a common theme? I mean, the, the biggest common theme is just that 
human nature is as old as time and it's one of the things that doesn't change. So a lot of the scams would take place around a big technological change. So in that in the 1920s and 30s, you had all these new technologies coming into the home and, and that was a, a big change and you had the Great Depression. But leading up to that, you had all the, these new technologies coming into place and you had the automobile and, and people were just, it's an exciting time. So anytime that there's this technological change, people get so excited about what the future could bring that they're almost willing to trust anything anyone says to them about that. Obviously, sort of high pressure sales tactics can always hurt people because we want to listen to a story. People don't really listen to statistics. You know, They, they don't want to see hmm. the data. They want to hear a good story. So I think a good story will always trump good data. And, and anytime it's really overly complicated, that's why maybe I'm, I'm a horrible salesman because I said I, I don't want to have complicated stuff. I want to dumb it down. But for a lot of people, they assume complicated equals intelligence. So anytime something is overly complicated and the person says, you know, trust me, I'm an expert. I got this. Don't worry about it. I think a lot of people take that as, okay, good, this person can handle it for me. I can just wash my hands of it. And, and that's when a lot of problems happen when you just let the person go hog wild and take over for you. Right. Well, I'm thinking of Bernie Madoff. You, you of course, mentioned him in your book. Uh, he's probably the most recent high-profile scam artist. But then you recounted Charles Ponzi as well. And so, you know, for whom the, the Ponzi scheme is named. Most people don't really know uh, that story or his story. Can you fill us in? Yeah, it's it's wild that it... it I think if he hadn't come around, maybe they'd call it the Madoff scam at this point. But, <laughs> yeah. but Ponzi was just a, a lifelong criminal, and he'd spent time in jail, and and he made these promise, promises from this this sort of stamp arbitrage that he could make money buying and selling stamps overseas because of the currency differences. It, honestly, the pitch didn't really matter. All he said was, I'm going to double your money in a short amount of time. He was, he was promising these huge returns in 45 days or 90 days, and at the time, Interest rates were, were relatively low, so people were just beating down the door. And they were bringing so much money to his place that it was just filling up these, these barrels full of money because he was making these promises. And all he was doing, of course, was paying out the earlier investors with money that would come in later. And, and even when some of the papers, the local Boston papers, started to, to try to figure out how he was promising these returns and saying that the math just didn't make sense, people didn't want to believe it because he said, no, they, they don't know what they're talking about. They're, just, they're mad. They can't get in on this. And, and the funny thing was, Ponzi was taking this money out of his own scam and investing it in safe government bonds that were paying a low interest rate <laughs> that people didn't want to put their money in. And people never thought to realize, like, why, if he's making such good returns, why wouldn't he put his own money in this? Because he was making so much money off of other people, obviously. <laughs> and and, and I mean, that's effectively what Bernie Madoff did, is is he would he brought money in. He, he didn't really have an investment approach. He just promised people these are the returns. And the, the interesting difference there is that Madoff never really promised. He never said, I'm going to double your money in 90 days, which obviously, if someone ever tells you that, they're they're probably delusional or a liar or both. But, but Madoff was more promising these really steady returns that would never go down. So he was promising these 10, 11, 12% returns, but you would never see a loss. I think he went like 22 years and he showed one quarterly loss over 22 years or something ridiculous, which is, is impossible when you're earning that level of return. So there's different ways that you could touch into the financial emotions of people. One of them, of course, is yeah, just promising these lottery ticket type gains. And, and that's, there's always a certain element of greed that you're going to get. But Madoff actually t touched on the fear for people because he was saying, you know, I, I'm going to take care of your money and it's going to be, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be as volatile as the stock market. It, it's going to be relatively smooth and an easy ride. And he, he really lulled people to sleep in terms of you know, he was promising these these returns that were just impossible to have make so smooth, but he smoothed them out because he was obviously making up the returns. 
Mm-hmm. That's yeah. one thing he learned from Ponzi is actually <laughs> <laughs> don't make it too outlandish. Yeah, exactly. Let, let's be reasonable here. <laughs> yeah. Well, Ben, you talked about kind of the the complexity model being something that that is used by scam artists, but you also talked about in chapter twelve. It was titled "Fooled by Intelligence." You talked about Enron. You talked about Theranos, and how one of the most brilliant people ever to live, Sir Isaac Newton, was taken by an investment that cost him big money. So smart people seem just as susceptible to foolish money decisions as normal people. So so how, in what way, can too much intelligence potentially be a danger when it comes to investing? Yeah, that, that I mean, Newton is arguably probably one of the smartest people who's ever lived, and he got caught up in what I think, from my research, is probably the biggest bubble of all time, is the South Sea bubble. And surprisingly, he put a, an investment in this South Sea company, which effectively was when these ships were going from England to America and, and searching for gold, that he put an investment in and made a bunch of money and then sold out. And he actually did pretty good because he, he sold out before the insanity hit. But then when he found that people were making more money because this bubble kept blowing even bigger, he put his money back in and then effectively lost it all and <laughs> and just made his famous quote where he said, you know, I, I can't you know, I can calculate the the, the distance between the stars, but not the the emotions of men, or something like that. But the reason that I think intelligent people get taken a lot is because they get overconfident, and especially in areas like, you know, I, I see this a lot where doctors and dentists and people who are very successful in one area of business or their career, they think it tr- automatically translates into becoming successful in other areas of their career, like like managing money and being in the stock market. And a lot of times, that's why those are the people who get taken. And there's a few examples of this in the book. But th- there was one study that looked into financial fraud, and they tested two different groups, one of them who had been taken for financial fraud and the other one who hadn't. And they gave them this very detailed questionnaire to check their investment acumen. And they actually found that the people who didn't get taken advantage of and had never become part of a fraud, they actually didn't get very many questions right. Actually, the people who got caught in the fraud got the majority of the questions right. And so it was these more sophisticated people who got taken advantage of. And again, one of the reasons is because they're overconfident. A lot of times you're dealing with very wealthy people. If they see other wealthy people getting money, it's not an absolute thing for them. They don't care that they've already made it pretty big and they make good money and they, they can save. When they see other wealthy people potentially getting you know rich overnight or, or finding an easy easy way to make money, they want to get in on that too because they feel like you know, even though for everyone else the, the these secret paths to riches don't exist, for for me it probably should, and it does. So why why shouldn't I get to take advantage of this like everyone else? And a lot of times that's how they talk themselves into getting taken advantage of in a fraud because they just feel like they're entitled to it. Yeah, that overconfidence. <laughs> well, Ben, like what what's your biggest takeaway for just everyday people on how to avoid scams? Whether it comes to you know the money that we're spending, the money that we're investing, uh, yeah, what, like what's your biggest takeaway there? I think just any time it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. So unfortunately, a lot of the stuff with saving and investing, it's going to be a long slog. You have to be patient. Anytime someone promises that they're going to make you rich overnight or they're going to give you something that sounds unrealistic, I think a lot of it is just really a slow game. And anytime someone tries to speed this process up, I think it's it's probably you're in for a world of hurt because most of the time it's just it's it's just not that easy. Unfortunately, good saving and good investing and good personal finances is is relatively boring. And anytime someone tries to make it too exciting, they're probably taking advantage of you. 
Yeah, it's as our friend JD would say, you get rich slowly, right? It takes yep. time typically, yep. right? Uh, so, all right, well, we want to talk more about investing in particular with you, Ben, including the, the most recent market crash and bounce back. And we'll get to some of those questions right after this break. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. That's why you listen to this podcast. And if you're looking to upgrade your wallet, you need to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. If you're paying for vacations with whatever card is in your wallet, you could be missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. You can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade, lounge access... Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. I'm guessing that a lot of listeners are starting to solidify their summer travel plans. We always like to get the families together, Matt, for a week at the beach every single summer. We've already got that trip to St. Simon's on the calendar. Pumped for that. But sometimes those vacations get expensive. So what better way to offset some of those costs than to have your home earning some money while you're away? That's right. Why let it sit empty when it could be earning extra income? It's the financially smart thing to do. So think it through. Maybe you've got some extra space in your home, or maybe you have an entire house to host. Or maybe you're just going on vacation and your home is sitting empty. In every case, you can Airbnb it. You already have the space, so it won't be a huge adjustment. I mean, the way I see it, if you're not using your space, you have two options. You can let it just sit there empty, or you do some optimizing and make some money off it. Really, if you think about it, you already have an Airbnb. You just need to start using it. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. If you're listening to this podcast right now and you're a small business owner, listen up. Upswell Marketing would like to remind you that when customers choose your small business, they're actually choosing you. So focus on super serving your existing customers and let Upswell handle the pipeline generation of new leads and customers. They do everything from hyper-targeting best fit prospects through campaign optimization. Upswell Marketing's unique approach includes direct mail, search engine marketing, and social media ads, and has fueled more than 10,000 small business success stories. Upswell specializes in developing customized direct response campaigns and is now offering a no-obligation free assessment of your current marketing strategies. Not to mention, new customers also receive 15% off their first order when they mention that they heard about Upswell on this podcast. For more information, visit upswellmarketing.com. That's upswellmarketing.com. Spring cleaning is kind of an annual rite of passage. We've all got to do it, minimize the junk that we have in our house. Emily and I, we just cleaned our closets out. It took hours, but it was so worth it. Now we've only got stuff in there that we love, and it's easier to find everything too. And so, you know, while cleaning your closets is helpful, well, there's something else you can do for your family this spring. Shopping for life insurance with Policy Genius, for example, is a really important part of your financial planning for the year. That's right. Yeah. And here is the thing that's important to remember, because you might be thinking you don't need to check out Policy Genius because you've got a policy through work. But even if you have a life insurance policy through your job, it may not offer you enough protection for your family's needs 
and it may not follow you if you leave your job. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options offer same day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Policy Genius works for you, not the insurance companies, and that means they don't have an incentive to recommend one insurer over another, so you can trust their guidance. Save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. All right, Joel, we're back from the break and we're talking with Ben Carlson. And Ben, this last section here, we want to specifically talk about investing, you know, individuals investing in the market. And, you know, as investors, what are the main lessons that we should take away from the most recent market crash, especially for, for new and younger investors who haven't ever experienced, you know, volatility like that? Right. Unfortunately, you know, most of the time it's it's not really gonna be as, as bad as this was where you have this this huge crash in, in a short period of time. But I mean, young people, especially if you've never really experienced this, it's something you're going to have to get used to. If you're going to make money, uh, the, the one thing that I always tell people is one of the only things you can count on is, is if you want to earn higher returns over time, you know, higher than the average rate of inflation, you're going to have to accept higher levels of risk. And that means occasionally you're going to have some face-ripping losses that are really going to hurt, unfortunately. And, and I think young people just have to get used to them because you're probably going to, if, you, if you're 20, 30, even 40 years old, you're probably going to experience half a dozen to a dozen bear markets over the course of your investing life cycle. And if you're in it for the long haul, you just have to get used to this. So unfortunately, volatility is just some, a part of investing in the stock market. And, and so there's just this trade-off between risk and return. And it's really becomes tempting when markets move as fast as they have to try to do something and take the wheel because, you know, the more you think the more that you do, the, the easier it becomes and that you can control your own destiny. And unfortunately, the market doesn't really care how hard you work. There are, there are no points for difficulty in the stock market. So mm-hmm. I, I just think the it becoming more patient and, and unfortunately, the long term is great, but life is not always lived in the long term. It's, it's lived in the short term. But it, it's really important to have a handle on your, your time horizon and your risk profile whenever you're putting money to work so you don't make a mistake by selling at the wrong time or buying at the wrong time or whatever it is. Yeah, you actually you wrote that folks who have only recently begun investing, they're actually at an advantage during a recession. So can you kind of explain what you mean by that? I mean, this is especially true for people who keep their job. Obviously, if there's a lot of people who are in financial pain right now and, and just don't have the ability to save, unfortunately. But 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 if you're one of the lucky people who has the ability to continue to save and, and invest and, and keep your job, yeah, you as a young person, you should get on your hands and knees and pray for a bear market because it means you're buying stocks at lower prices with higher dividend yields and lower valuations. So lower stock prices, especially if you're a person who's a net saver. So if you're saving into your 401k every week or two weeks or four weeks or whatever it is, whenever, however often you get paid, you're saving your IRA or brokerage account. When the stock market falls and, and you're saving on a regular basis, that's a good thing because you get a chance to put money in. So this bear market actually didn't give you a big window to keep saving when stocks were down. So you only had you know a, f- a couple week period where stocks were down a lot, double digits, where you could actually put money in because they bounced back so quickly. So it, actually, it, as painful as it can be for some people, an extended bear market is probably actually a greater opportunity for young people. So seeing those those fluctuations, especially if we're talking about money you're not going to need for retirement, which could be 10, 20, 30, 40 years in the future, 
then you really shouldn't worry too much about what the stock market prices are today. You should worry about what they're going to be in the future. So any bear market where stocks fall, it's very counterintuitive. But the stock market, unfortunately, is one of those few places where when prices go on sale, people run the other direction. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So for folks who are in the wealth building phase of their lives, you know, we're big fans of target date funds and total stock market index funds. You know, what's interesting about the S&P 500 is that there are only is it five companies that make up roughly 20% of the overall value of the S&P. Uh, does that worry you at all? Right. So it's it's Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, and Google, Google make up yeah, a huge yeah. percent. And they've obviously grown in, in a lot of their strong performances has helped the stock market not only this year but over the last you know five seven ten years as well and it it seems scary to people especially since it's all firms that are in a similar industry you know consumers and technology in these things but the the stock market if you look back historically has has always kind of been this way if we go back to all the way to the 1920s there's always been you know because of the way that the stock market is is set up the the biggest companies give you the biggest bang for your buck in terms of uh, of the returns. So it, it may seem scary because you think, well, if these like five companies fall, then the whole stock market is just like a house of cards that's going to fall over. But this is really how the stock market has always worked. And there's constant churning of these stocks too, because they're, if, if one of these companies falters, I'm you can guarantee there's probably going to be another one that, that'll be in its place as well. So hmm. the the stock market has always been very top heavy. There's a firm, you know, AT&T was in the top 10 stocks from the 1930s all the way through the 1970s. A company like GE was there for a while and and you think about that GE was one of the biggest companies in the in the world in the year 2000 and has slowly just faded away and fallen 50, 60, 70% since then. And even though it's one of the biggest companies in the world, the stock market hasn't really missed a beat and has kept up and these other companies have taken its place. So that, that's just kind of the natural way the stock market works over time. Yeah. In, in terms of time commitment and personal finance, Ben, you, you wrote that we spend 100 times more time watching TV than paying attention to our personal finances. <laughs> that actually kind of shocked me and saddened me when I, when I read that, <laughs> especially as someone who's a personal finance nerd myself. But uh, you actually then advocated for spending roughly just two minutes a day on personal money matters. So like, what's your take on that? Why is just two minutes a day enough to, to kind of think about money? Yeah, that w- that was a a study they looked at, and and they were trying to say, you know, people should be spending way more time of their day, spending on their finances and worrying about it. And my whole point is is just you put up the heavy lifting up front and and get these good systems in place where you have as much as you can be automated in terms of where your money goes when you get paid and and going to specific savings accounts for your different life goals that you just don't have to worry about it because we have this this limited willpower, and it would be nice to we we think that like the harder we work and the more time and energy we put into something, the better results will be. But especially with your finances, that's just not always the case. Because if, if you're trying to will your way into getting wealthier over time and saving, it's just really hard to do. So I think I would just rather not worry about it and get a system in place where you know you're automatically saving a certain amount every week or month or quarter or year or whatever it is, and move on with your life and worry about something else. Because your personal finances shouldn't be something that you're stressed about every day. And, and if you, I think if you are stressed about it too much, that means something is probably wrong in your financial life. Right. I feel like this is an example of when you spend too much time on something, 
it's just that it's too much time, right? And you know, when it comes to personal finance, if you're spending more than maybe you know 15 minutes a week, maybe that means you're <laughs> speculating a little bit, and you're you know you're looking at trying to to game the market a little bit or, or take advantage of, of dips a little too much, and that's not that's not the path that we recommend for folks. Yeah, and and, and unfortunately, that's that's how you make mistakes too, is because you're you're trying too hard and you're you're again trying to take the wheel where. Most of the time, if you just automate good mistakes ahead of time and you realize what your lesser self is and you try to take that out of the equation, because I know a lot of people would like to think, you know, I'll just spend a certain amount of money and at the end of the month, whatever's left over, I'll save. But unfortunately, most of the time what happens is you'll spend whatever's there. So yeah. <laughs> I, I'm more of an advocate of save first and spend whatever's left over. There was always a good Jerry Seinfeld bit he did back in his stand-up days where he said, it's it's really funny how all of the day's news fits exactly on the pages of the newspaper every day. <laughs> and that's the way I yep. think about spending money too, is that if it's there, you're going to spend it. So you might as well save first. And I treat my savings like it's a bill payment. Like I, I'm, I'm not going to touch that. I know that's something just like my mortgage that I'm going to be paying every month. And savings is, is part of my, my bills basically. And whatever's left over after that, I can spend it on whatever I want, but I first have to take care of those, those savings because, you know, to me that is, it, it's, it's, it's like a bill every month. Nice. Well, you know, Ben, it's clear by reading your work that you value simplicity. You know, much of the the content that you and your peers publish reflects that, you know, low cost investments that they're they're crucial as you, you know, are looking to demystify investing for everyday folks. And so for for most folks it is simple and it should only take maybe two minutes a day. But for you know, for other folks out there, what are the most important reasons to consider getting help from a financial pro? What circumstances should those individuals look out for? I think a lot of people it comes down to that there's a few things. Some people their financial life gets so complicated in dealing with financial planning and estate planning and building trusts and wills and some of these things where they just they need to outsource it because it just becomes overwhelming. For other people it could be that they just think that their time and energy is better spent somewhere else and they want to just outsource to an expert. So I Pay. One of the things that I like to pay for, you talked earlier about, you know, what are some of the things that you like to splurge on? I guess one of them I forgot was, I don't mind, especially since I have young kids, paying for time. And so I pay for a lawn service to cut my yard, even though I'm perfectly willing and able to do it myself. I save myself a couple hours a week by not doing that. So I don't mind paying for it. So I don't mind outsourcing to people who can do it better than me and and potentially do it faster than me. So I think part of it is some people just want to outsource and just have some help making decisions and going through the decision process. And and one of the things that we found from this this COVID crisis, especially when things were we were really in the heat of it in March and April, is we had tons and tons of people reach out to us because I think they finally realized, you know, when things are going well and you're in a bull market and stocks are going up, it, it, it just makes everyone feel like they're a genius because, you know, things are going up and your, mo- your money's growing and why would I ever want anyone to help me? And when things are going down and you're in a crisis, people freeze like a deer in the headlights sometimes and they really don't know what to do next and what steps to take. And sometimes you just want someone there who can help you walk through the decision-making process and and kind of help you make better decisions and, and help you make sure that whatever you're doing is going to be okay and the right decision. Obviously, no financial advisor can predict the future, but they can help you 
use probabilities to, to, to make decisions based on, you know, your current information and circumstances and, and make changes over time. So I, I think a lot of people assume they're going to financial advisor because, well, you're going to pick the best portfolio for me and you're going to pick the best securities and give me the best investment returns. I think if that's your idea of a financial advisor, you're, you're probably going to be, um, you're probably going to find some pain in that, that type of decision because most of the help that, that we think we provide is more on the financial planning side of things and just helping people make sure that, their, their financial life is, is in order and that they can make decisions and be confident in the decisions they make, you know, when they, they have questions about how they should spend their money and, 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 you know, can they retire and can they, can they buy this second home or whatever it is and, and just feel good. Can I send my kids to this college they want to go to? These sort of things where you're trying to make decisions with imperfect information. That's helpful. Hey, uh, Ben, this has been such a great conversation. We really appreciate your time and all your wisdom uh, for and for our listeners. Where can they find out more kind of about you and what you're up to? Yeah, just go to A Wealth of Common Sense is my, my blog. You can find my, my podcast there too and a list of my books and all that stuff. But uh, I publish pretty regularly. So anywhere on the blog, you should be able to find me. Awesome. Well, Ben, thanks so much. We really appreciate it. So thanks again for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks, guys. Yeah, thanks again, Ben. All right, Matt. Great conversation. Love me some Ben Carlson. His his website is awesome. This book was interesting. Uh, I loved uh, talking about financial scams too. It's something we haven't really talked about yeah. on the show very much. And he, he definitely had some interesting ones to share with us. <laughs> you, like, you like that Billy Goat Nut story? That was fascinating. <laughs> I see why that was his favorite, why he picked that one. Definitely an interesting uh, interesting way to scam somebody. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I wanted to know, what was your big takeaway from this conversation? Yeah, man, mine would be Social Security. That's something that we asked about. And the way I have always thought about it uh, is the way that he mentioned that probably a lot of millennials, a lot of Gen Zers do think about Social Security, if they ever do actually think about it, which is it's not going to be there by the time I get old and retire. I've always seen it that way. I tend to be sort of like a black and white kind of guy. It's either on or it's off. And so I think I've always seen the glass half empty. And I've always thought, okay, there's no way it's going to be there for me at all. Uh, And so because of that, I think that maybe that's part of what's led me to maybe be a little bit more diligent of a saver and investor. But it was encouraging to hear from him, someone who's, you know, in wealth management and does this day in and day out, that he does see it still being there down the road, but just maybe at a reduced capacity. Maybe that means there's going to be more taxes, more payroll taxes to, to pay for that increased Social Security as we live longer. Or maybe it'll be only at 80% of what it is today. But regardless, it was still encouraging to hear that, like, you know what, there, there probably will still be some money there for us. Because, you know, like you mentioned, like, what politician is going to say, you know what we don't need anymore? Social Security. Yeah. Who wants to <laughs> jump on that grenade, right? Yeah, nobody's going to do that. Nobody's <laughs> going to do that. And, and so what that means, though, for me is that I'm not going to stop in saving and investing within my retirement accounts, right? I, I just know, though, that there might be a little something there, you know, down the road that I can maybe count on. It may not be there, but there'll be this nice little treat versus there not being something there at all, which is basically how I've always seen it. Yeah, I'm kind of assuming that Social Security is going to be there for me, but I'm also not planning on it. There you go. If you know what I'm saying? Like, I just, it doesn't matter to me necessarily how much I will have. It's going to be gravy. Uh, That's the way I'm thinking about saving and investing for the future. Nice. But yeah, I think that was those helpful thoughts from Ben on that for sure. Sure. My big takeaway, I would say, was when Ben talked about the biggest takeaway for people avoiding scams in the everyday. Mm -hmm. And, And he was basically, his answer was avoid anything that sounds too good to be true. And there are, a lot of pitches out there 
on the internet right now, even for investing, uh, for private ways to invest. And it's not always the Bernie Madoffs of this world. Oftentimes it's, it's things called private placement. And you think that you're at a special advantage to invest in a particular way. Maybe it's through real estate online or in startup investing. I mean, there are all these different ways now that we can invest thanks to the internet. But at the same time, there's a huge potential for downfall. And I think the biggest thing we need to be aware of, whether it's someone we know or someone we don't know pitching us investment advice that is too good to be true or whether it's a website on the internet that, that a friend has steered us towards or that we've seen advertised on Facebook or something like that. Well, there are lots of investment avenues that are just too good to be true. And maybe like Sir Isaac Newton, you might make money in the short term, uh, but in the long run, you're going to, to lose quite a bit of money, I think, in the those non-tried, untrue ways to build wealth. So yeah, I thought that was a good answer. Avoid anything that just sounds too good to be true and you'll avoid most of the scams out there. So true, man. All right. Let's kick it back to what we're drinking. And at the top of the episode, man, you mentioned that we're having a beer, but we're actually having beers. We're having two <laughs> beers that are blended together. Um, and so this one, again, was donated to us by Andy, a uh, friend of the show. He is out of Utah. And he donated two beers by Ketos Brewing, uh, a coconut stout as well as a coffee cream ale. And he had mentioned that uh, that he would recommend taking these two beers and mixing them together, sort of like a black and tan. And it kind of caught me off guard. <laughs> I was like, "Wait, what?" Uh, Slow your roll, Landy. No way. Yeah, it's, I actually looked it up, and it's it's. I guess folks who are there locally, that's basically what the locals do. When you go into the brewery, you can request, a, I guess, a, a half and half or a black and tan, and they'll blend these two beers. So you get a blend of the coconut stout with the coffee cream ale, and it gives you this really delicious beer. So yeah, man, what were your thoughts? Yeah, I don't know if I've ever mixed two beers together, but what a better time to do it than today, right? <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I thought it was interesting. I think no wonder they mix well together. The coconut, the coffee cream, a stout and an ale. I think the way that they came together actually kind of made this a really interesting beer. It had like a little bit of a hazelnut vibe, a little bit of light coffee action going on when you mix these two beers together with like a little bit of cream in it. So yeah, definitely kind of a fun concoction. I thought it was super interesting. Yeah, the fact that we've mixed a stout with an ale, you know, you're kind of meeting somewhere in the middle. And so to me, this one kind of drinks almost like a brown ale, right? Like, so you've got some of those darker flavors uh, where you can maybe taste that coffee. You can taste even a little bit of coconut there, but it's not super heavy and it doesn't kind of weigh you down. You get a lot of that darker flavor, but it doesn't fill you up. <laughs> I feel like this is like an ad for like a widely produced light beer. <laughs> it doesn't fill you up. Always satisfies and never fills you up. But yeah, this again was a really tasty one. And this is from Ketos Brewing and it's spelled K-I-I-T-O-S. And I'm pretty sure that like the whole ethos or, you know, like the name of the brewery Ketos, like it's all Finnish or, or it's from Finland. Like the beer isn't from Finland, but uh, the guys who started it, it's like they're basically trying to incorporate a lot of Finnish ethos into their beer. So a really cool one. If you are out there in Salt Lake City, we'd recommend you go by there and check them out. Yeah, no doubt. All right. And for anybody who wants the show notes for this episode, we'll post a link to Ben's website, his book, and a couple of the articles that he's written that we really like too. And you can find those show notes up on our website at howtomoney.com. And as always, we would be incredibly thankful if you were not just uh, an occasional listener to How to Money, but that you were a subscriber. So if you haven't already subscribed to the show, we would ask you to head over to wherever you're listening to this episode, mash that subscribe button. And if you have been listening for a while and maybe you haven't left us a review, Joel and I would be very thankful uh, if you were to head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review over there. So Joel, that's going to be it, buddy. Until next time. Best friends out. Best friends out. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Join late night legend John Stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more. Now, this is a second term we can all get behind. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> 